Hi, I'm Dylan Taylor, Chairman and CEO of Voyager Space Holdings. I'm Ken Eppins, Founder and CEO of Orbit Guardians. Hi, I'm Raphael Rodkin, Founder of E2MC Space Ventures. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. And I listen to the Cold Star Project. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is not what is termed professional advice. The Cold Star Project is proudly presented by the Operational Excellence Society. Cold Star Tech is a supporter of the OPEX Society, and Jason Canigan is a member of its board of advisors. Talk with us at Cold Star Tech to find out what we can achieve together with your Lean Six Sigma or Operational Excellence programs. And check out opexsociety.org to learn more. Today's guest is Dr. Jonathan McDowell. He got his PhD from Cambridge and sort of immediately, it looks like, went to work at Harvard Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, as you guessed it, an astrophysicist. Uh, he has a an asteroid named after him, Planet 4589, uh, is heavily involved in the Chandra X-ray Telescope, which is still, like 20 years later, beaming us back pretty cool images. And he creates this monthly report called Jonathan Space Report. I think it's a good name for it. You know, it's appropriate. But <laughs> what I really enjoy is Jonathan's Twitter feed. It's one of the few things that I really look forward to when uh, when I go on Twitter because he is tracking launches and space vehicles. And there's not too many people who are doing that, especially from his perspective. Uh, I have really enjoyed watching the altitude charts of Starlink satellites, <laughs> the small sats, and see how they do. Sometimes they don't do so well, you know? Sometimes they go up, they don't go to their correct altitude, they sit there for a while, and then they come alive months later. Uh, at other times, they just drop into the sea, so you never really know what you're going to get. Speaking of not knowing what you're going to get exactly, this interview went uh, off in an interesting direction because I asked a question that uh, was not on our notes page, and I was really pleased at where it went. So we're going to talk about black holes, we're going to talk about James Webb Space Telescope, because that's in the news too, uh, a little bit about Starlink, and it's going to be a lot of fun. Jonathan, welcome. Okay, welcome back, Jonathan. I love having you on. We've had to wait a little bit for this because, uh, you know, everything is good, requires some waiting. So let's talk about uh, space infrastructure. I know Gordon Ressler and I have talked about the space superhighway and all the building blocks and that. From your point of view, what pieces do you believe we should be working on first? Do we need, for example, more crewed flights, more instruments, upgrading the deep space network? Where would you start? Right, well, um... I definitely think upgrading the DSN is is critical. I mean, they have been doing some stuff. I know that. So, so the the D space network is something that um, we on, on the Chandra mission, which I'm part of, we actually use the DSN to talk to Earth. We're sort of the least deep of the DSN's customers, and so uh, and and so you know we're often okay. We have to reschedule our contact with DSN because this antenna is down for improvements and like that so so we see them making these improvements all the time but yeah we're in a qualitatively new era now in deep space exploration i think mm -hmm. and so and so it's not just nasa's deep space network <clears throat> um you know isa and indeed even you know china have their own deep space networks and i think all of those have have uh got to be upgraded although i'm also boggled by the success that hobbyists have had in wow. detecting you know radio signals from uh, like people like scott tilly right who who regularly pick up uh, uh telemetry from spacecraft in orbit around the moon 
Mm. <laughs> and so, you know, they have a deep space network in their own uh, <laughs> yard. So, you know, the technology is changing. So maybe we can, we can do a better job of, of that infrastructure. Mm. I, I, I also think that we'll need, you know, communication satellite network, communications and navigation satellite networks in solar orbit. Uh, as relays, you know, if you imagine a future in which there's a lot of asteroid surveying and perhaps mm -hmm. mining going on down the road, uh, with small spacecraft doing most of it, yep. that small spacecraft may not have the oomph to have a high gain antenna that can mm. talk to BSN easily. They might want to, it might, it may be more effective in the long run to seed relay satellites throughout the inner solar system. Mm -hmm. and and also have those as a, a framework for navigation as well and uh, help help the, the, the survey probes figure out what they are uh, and and so I think there's a lot to be done on on um, that sort of infrastructure uh, um, the uh, uh, bigger picture of, of you know what else we need in uh, in the infrastructure I mean um, you know, there, there's this there's this question, right? Is is the gateway actually useful, mm. right? As having a space station in lunar orbit to support uh, lunar human surface operations. Um, I mean, it sort of makes sense, but does it really? You know, is it is it do you actually gain anything versus uh, um, sending vehicles along each time? Uh, I. I kind of go back and forth on that. And so I, okay. I think it'd be interesting to see how it works out in practice. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, naively, yes, it's good. You have something already there that, that you can stage things on. On the other hand, you have to kind of divert to it rather than going directly to where you want it to go. And, and you have to keep supplying it. Yeah. So whether that balances out in the long run is, is, is not super obvious to me. Okay. Yeah, and, and I see where you're going with that. Uh, I've learned a lot. There's a channel, of, I think his name is Drakinafel on YouTube and, and on uh, Twitter, and he's interested in naval history. And he, he has talked about the logistics of setting up a naval base. And uh, I was fascinated that all these ship people were interested, fascinated with an hour, hour and a half discussion on naval logistics, right? I'm interested, <laughs> but I didn't think they would be. And I think a lot of the same things that I learned uh, from his lecture would apply over here as well um you like you say you've got to put stuff there it, it becomes a diversion point and you've got to keep supplying it and so yeah i agree with you thought needs you to know, be put out previously it. right uh, napoleon taught us that the, the logistics is key mm -hmm. for in the military yeah right <laughs> it's also going to be key in exploration and settlement Right. Yeah. And the modular replaceable parts that I keep hammering on about oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, are really key here. We need to be able to not just make a thing and put it there, but be able to put that thing there and then pop stuff off of it and replace it with newer things as uh, as time right. goes along. That, that's, you know, can we can we get our USB-C standardized? Right. Part? <laughs> right. But and yeah, and that was, you know, that's one of the problems with with the ISS, right, is that all the modules are just slightly different. Mm -hmm. And so again, but again, that's an engineering trade, right? Is is um, when you have a generic piece of equipment, mm -hmm. uh, it means for the specific thing that you're using it for, it has functions that you don't care about. 
that, you've paid, that you've paid for yes. and you don't use, True. right? <laughs> you know, so maybe I get a totally standard laptop and it has, you know, Bluetooth and I never use Bluetooth or, you know, and so I, in, in a way it's wasted. But on the other hand, the standardization saving of just having made them all the same you know, is a win. And, and so, so that's an interesting design challenge mm -hmm. of what are the things that it makes sense to standardize? Right. What are the things that it makes sense to make as optional extras, but still sort of standardized in, in form? And what are the things that, you know, you actually do better just by doing as a one-off. Mm -hmm. And, and so it's very easy to, you know, take a strong, position of yo everything should be standardized we should make a hundred of the same thing and they can do anything but if it can do anything then it's super expensive even mm. if mass produced and so so you know we're we're um, i think we're we're hitting that in uh um in the space game and we've seen it in earth satellites right that uh, you had the sort of semi-standardized buses for communication mm -hmm. satellites where you had the Hughes 601 and so on, you know, that they launched like 50 of it. The, the communications payloads were super different on each one and the antenna configurations and so on. Just the sort of other infrastructure was similar. Uh, and then, but then you have now, you know, the CubeSats and the CubeSats are, many of them are, are um, you know, they have standard interfaces and then many of them are just mass produced. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the Planet Labs, you know, having, having very similar you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of basically the same design. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so, so I think we're at a point where you can look for that opportunity of, of, um, uh, uh, of, oh, we can win by standardization. Uh, but you have it, but you mustn't be too purist too about rigid. it. Yeah. You have to, you have to ask yourself, what's the right trade mm -hmm. in the situation? Okay. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm sold. So speaking of infrastructure and satellites and that, let's talk about Starlink for a minute. Uh, anybody who is interested in space should be following you on Twitter. Uh, it's a, a place where you're consistently putting out new information, new data. And what I have found fun uh, over the last couple of years, since the last time we did one of these, is following your Starlink altitude charts. We have they're kind of a trend line of altitude and they'll they'll go up and they'll be at the wrong altitude and dead and then suddenly some of them will wake up and go right up to the correct altitude and start functioning others will work for a while and then drop dead right well <laughs> so, i think it's interesting i mean yeah, what the, the thing yeah. that i learned so so on my web page the star mm -hmm. stats with html on my website uh, i have for each launch mm -hmm. i have a summary chart that i update almost every day on on you know, for that the sixty satellites from that launch, how did they go up and then down, and so mm -hmm. on? And and what people, you know, what what we found from from following that is that for each launch, the of order sixty satellites that they launched split into three groups of twenty, and they go into a drift orbit at three hundred kilometers, and then one of them almost immediately, one group almost immediately raises its orbit to the five hundred and forty-seven kilometer operational height. But the other two kind of stay in this drift orbit for up for one for one month and one for two months mm. and and then they they orbit raise and what that does is because the orbital planes at 350 kilometers wrote process at a different rate around the earth than the 550 kilometer mm -hmm. one 
they're essentially changing their orbital planes when they get to their final destination uh, for free. So the differential okay. rotation between 350 and 550 gives them that that free plane change just by by changing the timing of when they raise their orbit. And and so, but the consequence is that when you launch in you know February, um, March is really good. You know, it's it's June or July before all of your your satellites are in their final orbit, and strangely, when they come down, they also, for different reasons, I think, lower them in in stages, and and so the fraction of their their orbital lifetime in which they're actually in the operational orbit is lower than you might think, because mm. uh, it really takes a significant amount of time on the way up and on the way down. Uh, and I think that's something that hadn't been appreciated until a bunch of us started doing these 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 sort of uh, altitude charts. Really looking at the data instead mm -hmm. of just relying on what you know the SpaceX press releases were were saying. And so I think uh, and seeing you know a really you know not not most of the satellites, but a really significant number of the satellites being retired after a year in mm -hmm. the operational orbit instead of the five years that they're 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 designed for. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so, although, you know, to be clear, most of them are, very few of them are actually fully failing in the sense of just, you know, drifting uncontrolled in orbit and are menace to other things. They're, they're bringing them down actively, uh, but clearly they're finding with a significant fraction of satellites, yeah, okay, this communications payload isn't doing what we want. We're gonna retire it for safety and replace it or something like that. So so there's just enormous amounts, of, you know, with, with almost 3,000 Starlinks up now, there, there's just an enormous amount of data uh, and, and insight to be gained by seeing how they operate this, this complex system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Dr. McDowell, for some insight there, because you just told me things that I didn't know. Uh, and to see the data and watch how the game is being played uh, and, and uh, inferring some things from that behavior. Very valuable. Yeah, well, it helps us keep them on us, right? <laughs> well, they, yeah. From what you're saying, they sound like they're trying to be responsible citizens, you know, and, uh, and yeah, and yeah, not let doing, things run amok. Right. They're they're doing pretty well, um, yeah. I think. But uh, from that point of view, uh, whether their system is profitable or not is of course a whole other question. Mm -hmm, right. Uh, <laughs> but, but in terms of not generating lots of space junk, I think for the most, you know, with some exceptions, mm -hmm. they're doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. um and but it's important for that data to be public and, and visible and, and people to be able to assess mm -hmm. what the impact is of this utterly huge constellation right <laughs> and i'm not a a launch guy per se i don't get too excited about it it's just one part of many even though that's what the public sees but from an operational excellence standpoint which is my vocation right i love to see a 20 25 minute launch and 60 satellites being put up right it's it's a thing to behold what it oh, happens yeah, right? yeah. i love it's, it it's technically very impressive yeah yeah all right let's talk about black holes for a bit for those who don't know jonathan that is a major area of study my day job <laughs> yes, yes for, through uh, harvard smithsonian um i found a number of uh, news articles about black holes that i'd like to kind of go through and get you to comment on back in may uh the harvard smithsonian uh, lead team imaged uh, SDR A, a supermassive black hole at the center of the Milky Way, Badger, our galaxy. Badge yes, SDR, okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so SGR yeah. right, is is the uh, standard abbreviation for the constellation Sagittarius. Ah, okay. Uh, and 
and we say we write SGR, but we say Sag just because okay. you know that that tells you you're an insider. If you know, how to right. <laughs> I am and, not an astrophysicist. <laughs> and in yeah. the 1930s, I think Jansky, the first radio astronomer, discovered a swapping big radio source coming mm. from Sagittarius that he called Sagittarius A, Sag A, which turns out to be a couple of things, including a supernova remnant. He didn't have a very sharp image of it. He was just mm -hmm. like, oh, over there somewhere. Uh, in the 70s, as we got better radio telescopes, we discovered that some fraction of the radio light from Sag A was actually coming from a point light source. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that was called Sag A star, asterisk mm -hmm. for, for point like, I guess. And, and, uh, and so, so the Sag A, which is a big woofy thing, and then Sag A star, which is this point-like thing. And, and it turns out that that little point-like thing in the middle is the very center of our galaxy mm. and is the 30 million solar mass black hole monster in the middle that <laughs> is chowing down on stuff, right. releasing radio waves as a result. Okay. Should we be terrified about this? It seems terrifying to me. A supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy or even any galaxy. You know, does well, it mean that everything is get swallowed? Almost almost <laughs> yeah. every galaxy has a supermassive black hole in it, we now know. Mm -hmm. And and uh no, you know, no, it's been there for for you know 10 billion years or so. <laughs> right. Uh it's not going anywhere, it's sitting in the middle. Uh, and we're not going well. We're orbiting the whole, I mean, in the gravitational potential of the whole galaxy. Mm -hmm. um, Sag A star dominates the, the gravitational field in the central few light years. Mm. Uh, it doesn't, you know, there are so many stars in the galaxy, right? Well, I guess it's, you know, as soon as you get to the point where um, there are a few tens of millions of stars within the sphere, and so that's that's pretty much in the very center of our galaxy. Uh, you don't even notice Sag A star's gravity when you're out here in the boonies of of mm. the Orion. Yeah, uh, that's you where know, we are, right. where we live. And and so from the point of view of its gravity, it, it's totally not a concern for us. Mm. Now the thing that can go wrong to good galaxies <laughs> is that if you start dumping large amounts of matter into the center of the galaxy and it dribbles down to the bottom of the gravity well and mm -hmm. finds itself uh, swirling around the black hole and going in. As you can feed the black hole too much, mm -hmm. uh, it can become what's called a quasar. Mm. Uh, and so then it starts emitting radiation at the rate uh, of, of, you know, uh, a solar mass turned into energy every year. Mm and and it uh, and it can also if you feed it just the right amount not too little but not too much uh starts squirting out if the black hole is spinning mm -hmm. along its north and south poles it starts squirting out jets of material at the speed of light uh positrons and electrons probably uh that kind of destroy a lot of the things in their path mm -hmm. uh, and we do see that a few million years ago there was uh, there's these things called the Fermi bubbles that were discovered a okay. few years ago by my uh, uh, some of my colleagues at CFA, and and they are uh, 
evidence that there was an explosive release of energy essentially uh, a few million years ago when the black hole chomped down on something big, I guess, and, and squirted out these jets for a while. And it seems to have quietened down again now. And the really good news is that that didn't come quite in our direction. It seems to be, you know, some more 90 degrees to us. And so I wouldn't want to be living in the path of those of those mm. jets, um, because if it happens again, you know, you, you, you could get fried, but we're not in the path. And so I think that uh, um, we can, uh, on, on a, you know, sort of, is it doomed for the earth kind of viewpoint, we don't have to worry too much about this black hole right now. It's unlikely uh, that in the next couple billion years, say, it's unlikely that it will have another conniption and, and, and go quasar. Now, when Andromeda hits us a couple billion years from now, uh, and you know maybe the, the two black holes from Andromeda and Argos will merge, and you'll have, it, you'll have a quasar for a while, and then gravitational wave burst, and all kinds of horrible stuff. That, that, that could make it altogether too exciting to live around here. But, but, uh, but in the near term, and by the near term, I mean the next couple billion years, mm. uh, the, uh, uh, we, should be, we should not have to worry about our friendly neighborhood, supermassive black hole. Okay, good, excellent. <laughs> All right, I saw an article in Forbes back in June about NASA uh, Hubble finding a free floating black hole. What do you think of this concept? Is it uh, just a theory or is it real? No, no, Does it have any implications? So, so um, this, I believe, is work done by my colleague Jessica Liu and her, ah. her team. Uh, and and um, they were looking at, uh, uh, and some other folks from, uh, from Space Telescope were involved, uh, and they're looking at a phenomenon called gravitational lensing. Mm. And this is a way to find black holes that you can't find other ways, which is, so what you do is you look at a region of space where there's loads of stars and you measure the brightnesses of those stars. And what, sometimes what you see is a particular star that normally doesn't vary on its own, suddenly gets brighter for a while mm. and then fainter. And what, and unlike when a star has its own kind of you know indigestion or something that brightening and fainting happens in all colors of the spectrum simultaneously it doesn't happen in the blue but not the red and stuff like that and what's going on is that a massive object is halfway between you and it and it's focusing the light from the star like a mirage hmm to get you so some of the light that ought to be going off to our friends in on krypton or something instead gets bent around to come to us as okay. well as the light that would normally come to us and so you get more light from the star here and less light somewhere else hmm. and so that's called gravitational lensing and and so what you see is a brightening and then a fading as this object passes between us and the okay. star and so that's one way of saying that there's a mass there, mm -hmm. right? Now, sometimes what we do is we see that happen and we see that there is actually, you know, a faint star that's passing uh, along doing the lensing. Mm -hmm. But in this particular case, there was no star there to do the lensing. There's something invisible bending the light to do the magnification. Mm. 
And so, and, and the amount of magnification tells you how much mass is doing the lensing. Mm. And so uh, if it's, uh, and in this case, it's like five or 10 times the mass of the sun. So if, and if that were a star, you'd see it, it'd be really bright. <laughs> so uh, you have something dark, you know, several solar masses that's got a lot of gravity, you know, uh, what could it be, right? And so it's an isolated black hole. We're not talking here, by the way, about the sort of supermassive black holes mm -hmm. that sit in the centers of galaxies like J star. This is much wimpier. This is a, the dead remnant of a massive star. Ah. And so it's a mere five to 10 times the mass of our sun, mm. uh, right? Which, uh, and, and so, so it's a stellar object in some sense, mm -hmm. but it's a black hole. Mm. Um, and, and so, yeah, this is a great way to find isolated black holes. Uh, and it's hard to spot them any other way. Okay, good. Thank you for the explanation. Um, the, the warping of light comes and into play way, once again. Mm -hmm. this warping of light, you know, if you yeah. saw, well, we're going to get onto this in a minute, I guess, yeah. but you saw oh. the beautiful picture of yes. uh, the galaxy cluster taken by JWST. Right, right. Uh, where you see these, this cluster of galaxies that's a mere five billion light years away. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and behind it, there's all these other galaxies that are more like 10 billion light years away. Mm -hmm. And they're all, the images are all distorted in in these like long sausage shaped hmm. uh, uh uh things and and that's because of the gravitational lensing that the light from them is passing this foreground cluster of galaxies and getting bent hmm. okay. uh, and magnified but also distorted uh and so this phenomenon of gravitational lensing is something that einstein predicted back in like 1916 or something ridiculous hmm. and it was first seen in 1979 and uh, it, with the discovery of something called the double quasar. Okay. Uh, uh, where you yeah. see two images of, this, of the same quasar and one image gets bright and then fades a month later. And then six months later, the other image gets mm -hmm. bright and then fades. It does exactly mm -hmm. what the first one does, but lag because mm -hmm. the path from the quasar to us at the speed of light is longer one route than the other wow. as the curve is bent, right? And so by you can tell how much longer by seeing the lag between what the two images do. Uh, I remember as a 18-year-old uh, summer intern at the Royal Gange Observatory, the guy who discovered this came and gave a lunch talk and said, I found this really weird thing and I think it might be a gravitational lens. It was such an exciting discovery. And now, it's a, our telescopes have advanced to the point that we see this phenomenon of lensing happening in all different kinds of situations in the universe. And it's a really powerful tool that we're using all the time. Hmm. Yeah, my mind starts to break a little bit when I look out and start to think about the time and looking into the past, looking out there and like, how do you even operate in that field, right? Because whatever's going on way over there, uh, you're never going to get to it, right? Uh, by by our conventional means. So, let's talk about then the the photos. Um, James Webb Space Telescope images were just released in the last couple of days. At the time of this recording, it is uh, I think Wednesday, July thirteenth, when we're doing this. 
probably be a month or so later when this comes out. Uh, what have those images made possible for you as an astronomer? Well, I think, and we're, you know, my team are actually just downloading the actual science data as we speak to take a look at it, right? Because it's one thing to see the pretty pictures on the webcast. Right. It's another thing to get the FITS data files and, you know, look at the pixels and so on. So we're, we're, that's, that's my task for the rest of this week. But um, what I can tell you is this, that, 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 that the range of data that they showed yesterday really is a taster. It's sort of the appetizer plate, right? Like okay. the house appetizer plate with all the different things to show me what you can do, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And so we saw this, this, you know, lensing cluster at 10, you know, billions of light years away. We saw the spectrum of an exoplanet only 1100 light years away. Uh, we saw interacting galaxies in kind of the middle universe. We, we, we saw beautiful image of the star formation region of the Carina Nebula uh, in our own galaxy. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so it's, it's, they're demonstrating the different kinds of things that JWST can do. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it is a um, uh, uh, I, I I call it I call it a Swiss Army knife telescope. Okay. Right. It's not one of these missions where it's designed to do one specific thing. Mm. Right. It's a facility where it can attack many different kinds of science questions. Mm -hmm. The important thing right now is to get data usually on things that we've looked at before in a threadier way with Hubble, right. right? And then we can compare with this data and go, okay, now I see what JW can do. Mm -hmm. And that helps me understand what I can ask JW to do. Uh, you know, what, what kinds of things I can, I can and can't do. And, and for they, they released this beautiful document uh, uh, called the commissioning report which goes into a lot of detail about how the different modes of the telescope are working. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that I think is going to be challenging is what's called the point spread function, where every picture you have uh, from JW, the, the bright parts all have these spikes. Yes. Right? And if you look carefully at those spikes, they're very complex. Mm. And so correcting for those, because they're not real, right? Mm -hmm. They're actually the light bouncing off the different pieces of this mirror support mm. structure and, you know, result of combining the different hexagons mm -hmm. and so on in the telescope. And so it's going to be a pain in the rear to remove that signature from the data or account for it, uh, and so, which is, you know, why they pay us the big bucks. I mean, it's part of the design and, and, and we're, you know, we have to be up for it. But, uh, but so we're starting to see now, okay, We've known the idealized version of what it's going to do. What will it really do? What are the tricks? What what uh, uh, what are we going to have to work around? Uh, and uh, one of the things you worry about, right, is what's the background? That's to say, the noise in the data. And it looks like the noise is pretty low. Mm -hmm. uh, we can see we have a lot of dynamic range. We can see a very bright thing next to a very faint thing. And so that's very important. And so we're getting a sense of, of what the capabilities of the instrument are. Okay. Yeah. Um, I, when I 
first saw the image images i was like okay this is cool this is sharp uh but the seeing the comparison to similar hubble uh exposures i guess whatever data collection right is is night and day right you could definitely see the advancement yeah uh, and, and, and I, um, well, the the observing time is a lot shorter right that too right right yeah right, it used to right, take right. like a month the, to do the, something one of the things i know a lot of my colleagues are very excited about is that in the spectra from that cluster image mm -hmm. you can see uh you can measure the amount of oxygen in a galaxy that's uh, at a very high redshift. Uh, huh. And and so you can get enough detail, not just to measure the galaxy, but to see whether it's a, uh, got more or less chemical elements than you expect. Uh, you know, hmm. uh, so and that's one of the key measurements that you want to understand for understanding the evolution of the universe hmm. at, at that phase. And so it seems like, and that's a measurement that people have struggled to make with uh, the Keck telescope and so on from the ground. And JWST goes, oh yeah, you want one of those? Right, fine. <laughs> you know, eight hours, got it for you. And and uh, and so so that I think, you know, so there's several uh, gems in those data sets they released that people are gonna be copying on many other objects and really really starting to understand in particular that early phase of the universe when the galaxies were just forming. okay jonathan this is a question that's never occurred to me before uh, but you probably know the answer to who chooses what jwst does ah but it points at and you yeah. know what it, projects it, it's, the is, is, it's the same the question is the same for all of the space telescopes the most okay. ground-based ones Okay. Uh, we, we're just finishing doing that choice for our Chandra X-ray telescope mm -hmm. next year. Uh, uh, so what happens is this, once a year, uh, all the astronomers in the world write their little four or five page essays okay. on, I want to look at this galaxy and this is why it's good. This is why it, uh, uh, it's important for astronomy to look at this particular galaxy and not some other one. And this is the configuration that this is why J, JWST will be able to distinguish between theory A and theory B, and Hubble won't. And okay. so, like we just said, well, don't use data, just use Hubble, right? So, so show me why it's scientifically important. Show me why this is the telescope you should be using and not some other telescope. Mm. And show me that the amount of time you're asking for is enough that you're going to be able to actually say something definite right you're going to have enough signal to to actually distinguish between theory a and theory b uh and then those proposals uh they're basically grant proposals but they're for observing time uh go into a peer review and we take uh so we maybe get a thousand of those and we then get a bunch we 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 get um jury duty for astronomers right <laughs> we, we get a bunch of astronomers oh. who get asked to uh <coughs> to come so not the people on the mission yeah astronomers selected from the general profession mm -hmm. fly in to some uh, in the case of jw probably baltimore and we lock them in a hotel for like a week and have them and divide up the proposals into galaxies and stars and exoplanets and so on and have specialists in each one 
and and you know it's sort of like the choosing the new pope you kind of lock them up until they have an agreement then the white smoke comes out okay we list them and say okay we're going to do these out of a thousand proposals we got we're going to do these hundred projects uh, and they're selected you know on the basis of <clears throat> what's going to give the best science mm -hmm. what's going to give the best science and and uh uh and so now we have, you know, the, the menu of the science projects we want to do for the next year. And, and then it's the mission team's job to go, what order should we do these mm -hmm. in? <laughs> right? Okay. When is JW in the right part of its orbit to look at this? Uh, you know, can we do it so that rather than, you know, slewing JW, you know, looking at something over here and then looking at something over there and then looking at something over here again, let's right. put them in the right order to minimize the amount of sure. ground we have to do. Okay. <laughs> and find the right guide stars to help us mm -hmm. orient properly. And so there's an enormous amount of work that goes into going from that list to what we call the short-term schedule. Ah. <laughs> uh, which is what is JW gonna look at in the next couple of weeks? And that's now live. I, I wish I had the URL here. Uh, um, you can actually look up that online right now. Okay. See what what's JW going to observe today, and what's it going to observe tomorrow, and hmm. and so for the next few weeks. And uh, um, and, and so that's all public. And so, okay. but that's the process. Hmm. And and uh, and so it's this annual cycle of of uh, um, you know getting putting your proposal, getting approved, getting the data. And then of course you have the effort of trying to right. turn the data into science and into a paper and publishing it, hmm. and then coming back the next year for, uh, uh, for a follow-up observation. Okay, yeah, that was fascinating and far more democratic <laughs> than I imagined it would be. I felt it would be a little more dictatorial. And, so, and what's nice yeah. about it is anyone in the world can apply. You don't yeah. have Ah. Even for you know, even for a purely American telescope, and Webb is an international one, mm -hmm. right? Uh, uh, I, I just want to say, James Webb is NASA, European Space Agency, and Canada. NASA often forgets to mention that, but it is mm. it is an international mission. Um, so so you know, but but if you're from uh, you know Thailand or something like that, yeah, put in your proposal. We won't give you any money along with it. If you're American, you might get money along with the time. Ah. If you're not American, you just get the time, but but that's enough, and you get the data. And the way it works right now in this controversy about this is you have the data for a year. Ah, that's it. And after a year, the data becomes public, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? So that's an incentive for you to publish your paper fast. Or you're going right. to get scooped, <laughs> right? Uh, and then other people will look at the data. Maybe they'll not looking at the thing that you were looking at in the middle of the field. You, mm -hmm. They, they want to look at something else. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and so you get all kinds of serendipitous, serendipitous discoveries. Um, and so the public archive grows and grows and, and you can do all kinds of great stuff. Okay. I like that. <laughs> Smart <laughs> people have been involved as you would expect. Yeah, yeah. It's a real, I think it's a really healthy system. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, there are, there are, Cavills. Um, uh, we've moved recently to a blind reviewing process because there was a feeling that, for example, was a gender bias in who mm. got time and things okay. like that. I think we in Chandra we didn't really have so much of a gender bias, but in Hubble there was, and mm. and so 
So now you don't know whose proposal it is that you're reviewing. Uh, and this is talking about, you know, does that actually matter? Is it in fact relevant that mm -hmm. this person has successfully, you know, done similar projects mm -hmm. in the past, so they actually know what they're doing, uh, as opposed to someone who's just, you know, never done it before. But but mm -hmm. but the general feeling of the community now seems to be, no, you make it blind, and especially, I'm not convinced it works because the field is so mm -hmm. small that it's often easy to guess who it is. Huh. Right. This this person's interested in this topic. Yeah. Right, exactly. And I recognize the style of writing or I recognize the particular way that they're going about it, you know. And and so we're, you know, but but we do the we do the best we can. We do the best yeah. we can to make it fair for everyone and and to again to optimize the science, uh, independent of other, you know, considerations. And and very, look at you know what's the archive going to be in ten years' time? Is this data we want in the archive, right? Mm. Okay, yeah, and I'll see if I can find that link and put it in the description. Uh, hopefully, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll remember to that. It to you, yeah. Okay, great. Um, so let's finish up with this then, Jonathan. What are you working on as a scientist and investigator? Well, I, I recently finished a paper, uh, published a paper on a distant quasar. Uh, my favorite quasar, PG1407 plus 265. And I discovered that there's a cluster of galaxies that I had thought was going to be sitting around the quasar, but in fact, turns out to be halfway between us and it. Oh. Uh, and, and so I was, and I was trying to figure out whether it was lensing or not. And it's just too offset to be lensing. Uh, but it's sort of an interesting new object that we hadn't known was there. And one of the things I'm wondering about is, how many uh, the reason we hadn't seen it before is that this quasar is so bright particularly in the x-ray mm. that the cluster had been lost in its glare mm. but with mm. previous telescopes that didn't have as sharp x-ray vision as chandra does mm. and and so now i'm starting to think about okay let's look at other bright quasars and see whether we might have missed uh clusters associated with that uh mm. and so that's one thing i'm thinking about i'm also spending a lot of my science time on the problem of satellite constellations and how they affect astronomy. So I'm sitting on a lot of committees ah. now that are trying to go, what is the impact really going to be? How can we mitigate it? Um, you know, where, what is the uh, the solution? So, and this is something, you know, it's important. It's, it's like, it's an unfunded mandate for us as astronomers, right? We have to respond to this thing that, that is affecting us and we don't have special funding for it um so uh but but we've got to look at it because it's going to affect how how the profession does its work right yeah and that's been uh, an outcry for a couple of years now at least of the streaking across the sky all right yeah. well, jonathan i appreciate you doing this uh if somebody wants to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to go about doing that uh you know the where i hang out mostly is on twitter mm -hmm. and so i'm planet 4589 on twitter and if you if you ping me on there if you if you you know at me uh, uh in a tweet uh i'll i'll usually uh uh reply although today i've got so many responses to, on the james website mm -hmm. but i'm it's like thirty-two thousand likes on it or something it was it was a yeah, lot that's, and, yeah. and seven thousand retweets so i was very gratified by that and also actually i'm also still getting you know uh, like two days ago, I tweeted something at Elon, 
and mm. you responded. And so now whenever you do that, your mentions are, you know, mm. drowning in uh, people talking to Elon uh for the next uh week so, mm -hmm. so, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully that'll die down soon and i can actually yeah. engage again with my followers which i love doing right uh twitter's been a really great place to to have you know intelligent discussion mm -hmm. about about space and astronomy so. all right well thank you appreciate you doing this all right i hope you enjoyed our talk with dr jonathan mcdowell i had a really fun time with it and learn something, right? That's what I do this for, is to meet up with these folks, these really smart space defense folks, learn from them and share it with you, okay? So that I'm not just keeping all that precious knowledge to myself. Speaking of special knowledge, precious knowledge, expertise, if you're a defense contractor and you're struggling with bid capture, come talk to us. I will bet you there are whole areas that you have just missed and it's not because you're stupid it's just because you're focused on what you're doing and you're in it every day and to do surgery on this stuff you got to be outside of it looking in uh, i've talked to defense contractors who thought that their competitive advantage had something to do with their features this is not really likely to be true it's probably something else and i'd be happy to talk with you and work with you to figure out what that is so if you want to improve your bid capture rate have your salespeople feeling successful rather than losing and losing and losing and losing. Uh, then come talk to us at Cold Star Tech. Just go to coldstartech.com. You'll see a whole page about uh, bid capture, innovative bid capture, and uh, book a time to talk with us. Thanks for listening.